G'day legends, welcome back or welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. Before we get into this episode and I introduce our guest, I need to mention that this episode was recorded in the middle of August 2020, a time where the coronavirus is still devastating many people around the world. While we're very lucky here in Perth that there are minimal cases and life is back to normal, there are many others around the world who are still severely affected by the virus. So I hope this episode finds you healthy and happy and making the most of your situation. Please remember that it's okay not to be okay. And if you are struggling, then please reach out and talk to someone. As the saying goes, a problem shared is a problem halved. So please don't suffer in silence and remember that it ain't weak to speak. Welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I'm Tom Scollet, or Skulls as I get called, and this podcast has been designed for cricketers and cricket lovers who want to learn and improve themselves. In this podcast, we interview past, current, and future cricket stars to find out more about their journey and what makes them successful, while also sharing some audio from ourselves at Cricket Mentoring. Our goal is to help you become your best on and off the field, so I hope you enjoy this podcast and get something valuable out of it. Today's guest is a professional cricketer, a mentor of ours and the head of female cricket at Cricket Mentoring, and someone who has become a friend over the past few years. Bhavi Devchand is currently contracted with Victoria and is training and rubbing shoulders on a daily basis with some of the world's best cricketers, including Elise Perry and Australian captain Meg Lanning. While she's living her dream, it certainly hasn't been an easy run and she's had her fair share of setbacks and disappointment. As one of our mentors, I probably should have shared Bhavi's story a long time ago, but had I done so, we wouldn't have got the past 15 months of her story which, as she says, has been some of the best and worst times in her life. The setbacks she faced forced her to step out of her comfort zone, which has resulted in some of her biggest growth as a person, which she shares with us throughout this podcast. This is an awesome story of challenging yourself and getting out of your comfort zone, as well as going back to why you started pursuing cricket, because you love it. I have no doubt this episode will give aspiring cricketers hope that anything is possible, and hopefully inspire a young boy or girl somewhere in the world to chase their dreams, despite the obstacles that you face. So let's get into it. G'day legends and welcome back to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. Today's guest is a friend, a mentor and a professional cricketer, Barbie Devchan. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Skulls. It's probably been a while. Um, we should have done this a while ago. You've, uh, you've been a mentor and involved with Cricket Mentoring for a number of years now and we haven't actually told your story, even though You've shared um, a few vlogs and you've come to India and you've done a lot with us. We've, we've done a lot of planning for this upcoming season, but due to what's going on in the world, things are on hold at the moment. So what's happening in your world over there in Melbourne at the moment? Yeah, so we're in the, state, in the middle of stage four at the moment, which means you basically can't do anything uh, further than five kilometres from your house and only essential services, but we've been outrageously lucky. Yeah, so we've got a government exemption. Uh, to be able to train, which we're extremely lucky because we didn't think any form of cricket would be an essential service. Uh, so it's still pretty strict. Like the boys and girls have to be completely separate and they make sure that we're not crossing over at all. Um, and we have to be really smart with rotating balls and all sorts of rules. But we're very, very lucky to be able to train three days a week. Outside of that, there's not much going on. So other than your training, are you just sort of homebound? Are you... You're not able to see people, you're not able to get out and about. And are you doing all your fitness work at training or is that something you have to do in your own time as well? Yeah, so most of the fitness work done at training. Um, and then what we've done is our strength and conditioning coach has given us two sessions a week, which are running-based sessions, uh, which we can do on our own. You're allowed out for one hour of exercise a day and that's uh, within five kilometres of where you are. So pretty lucky where I am. There's heaps of really nice areas where you can run. There's a few soccer fields. There's a cricket field not too far away. So plenty of opportunity to get it done. And so what are you doing in your spare time or your non-training time? How are you passing your time? Actually, I've been pretty busy. So doing a lot of work on, firstly, some cricket mentoring work, trying to get the female area up and running so when we do open up, we're ready to go. Uh, the other side of it is I'm about to launch my own podcast in so the mental game and the inner world, uh, starting with female cricketers as well. So looking at all the branding and the behind the scenes work that goes into that. Um, outside of that, I'm usually a pretty busy person. So I've taken the time to just relax, chill out, um, really switch off when it's time to switch off. Reading a few different books, uh, 
got into a few Netflix series, learning how to cook some new meals. So just doing stuff that you don't normally get to do, uh, which stage four has presented an opportunity to do it. Awesome, awesome. And you've got you to take those opportunities to switch off in the can. Before we start onto your, your journey and your story, any good book recommendations for our listeners? I'm reading one at the moment and it's up there with one of the best I've ever read. It's called Zen Golf. Um, I'm reading it and I'd highly recommend it for cricketers as well. It's just short little two or three page chapters uh, written by a psychologist that works a lot of pro golfers, um, but it's so applicable to cricket and it's made a massive difference to my bowling. I've been trying it out through pre-season so far. So I'm very excited to see how that goes once we're playing as well. Awesome. Zen Golf. Check it out, legends. All right. Now that we've got a little bit of context around what's happening in your world, let's let's go back to where it all began for you. You're born in Zimbabwe and you, you came to Australia, moved to Perth when you were eight years old. What's your earliest memory of playing cricket? Yeah, so born in Zim, which is also another big cricket country. Um, earliest memory would be like most people in the backyard. Uh, we had a we had a reasonably big backyard, and I remember big the old school satellite dishes back in the day. Um, and I remember playing against my cousins, or my brother was a bit young at that stage, and my dad. And basically, all we used to try and do was whack this ball into the satellite dish, um, which probably explains why my pool shots are right at the moment. Um, but that's my very earliest memories. But and was that was that in Zimbabwe or in Perth? That was in Zim. Um, yeah. And how old do you reckon you were then? Uh, would have been around six, seven, eight by the time I was actually kind of out there playing. Um, but then in Perth was the first time, it's probably about a year, so I was probably about nine or ten, before I realised that it's actually possible to play cricket in a team and an actual game. Because in Zim, it's a very different world. Female, There's no real opportunity for females to play. Um, I remember used to try and get around and mess around with the guys in the nets at school when I was in year three, um, but it was never the same. It's just something that didn't happen. Um, so my earliest memories of actually playing the game were in Perth. And so you're you're 27 now, and we're talking when you're sort of nine, ten, eleven. You're in you're moved to Perth. So we're not talking sort of 16, 17, 18 years ago. What was it like back then for girls playing cricket? There was there was an article released. Yesterday in the West Australian newspaper about how female cricket has grown enormously in Australia and Western Australia is leading the way. But I know that it wasn't like that back when you were sort of growing up and learning to play. What was it like for you as a female playing cricket? Yeah, not a chance. So when I started, I was 11. Um, and it actually was a complete accident that we've worked out there was a girls team near us. So there were a total, I was 11 and the closest girls team was Whitford's Cricket Club and that was an under 15s team. Um, so I had to join that. There were a total of four, I think there were four teams in the whole state at an under-15 level and then like another four at under-19s. Um, and that was it. So you're looking at eight cricket teams. And I know there's, now know there's well over 100, I think. Um, and it wasn't really a profession. Like, you know, and yeah, I want to play for Australia one day. Because I didn't even know I didn't even know the Western Australian women's team existed. Like I actually had no idea until I was about fourteen or fifteen. Um, and even then, it was not professional in any means. Like that training um, worked very hard, but you're training two nights a week, no money involved. It wasn't really something that you look to say, "All right, yeah, I want to be a professional cricketer." Were you at that age? Were you playing other sports, and cricket was just just something you did? Yeah, so I was a massive hockey player. I uh, probably spent a lot more time in hockey than I did in cricket in the early days. Um, played a little bit of soccer as well. I uh, wasn't very good at it, but enjoyed it the same. But at that stage, like right through till I was about 15, I'd say that hockey and cricket were the same for me. It was just in the winter, go run around with my mates. In summer, go run around with my mates. And that was about it. And so at what point did you start to take cricket more seriously and really make that as your number one thing and something you loved? It was probably, to be honest, when I got dropped in my first under-17s team. So I was uh, 13 when I got invited down to the WACA um, to trial for the under-17s team. I was so far off it. I was probably never making it, but I, tri I trialled and trained with them all through winter. And that started to give me a little bit. I was like, wow, how cool it is. It's the WACA. Um, we get to train. There's other people that play. We had access to the Fury girls. Um, and then I got dropped. Uh, well, I didn't make the final 
selection to go away to the championships. And that kind of just, I don't know, it just triggered something in me. Say, oh, actually, no, I want that. That's something that I really want to get after. And from there, I don't think I really look back. That's uh, it's really a good message for anyone listening, any young, <coughs> excuse me, any young players listening, that sometimes the biggest pains in that moment become your best motivators and something that really is a game changer and really you look back on as an important moment in your development or your career. And that sounds like it's something that sort of happened for you. That, that being dropped was something that ignited a fire within you to, to be better, to make that side in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you'll probably see it's a recurring theme for me, uh, getting in and out. But to be honest, I don't think I'd be anywhere near where I am today without that. You have to, you have to sometimes get knocked down to realise what is it you want and then also to learn from it and get better. Through then, you're, you're sort of 14 and 15 and you're starting to take it more seriously. You've been invited at the Wacker and you're going pretty well. But what did the next five years look like? What did the next part of your development in your te- sort of older teenage years and early 20s, what did they look like for you? Yeah, so I think 15, 16 is when I started to actually not just go down and play. It was more, okay, how do I get better? And a big part of that was Greg Williams, who was my first cricket coach. Uh, lucky enough that Mike Hussey put some money towards, it's still going, it's called the Mike Hussey Cricket Academy for girls based up at Wanneroo District Cricket Club. Um, and Greg and I would have worked together for about four or five years leading into my late teens. Um, and he's the guy that set the foundation, everything I know about cricket. My, my old man loved to play, but he wasn't someone that knew too much about the technical side of the game. Um, and Greg also introduced the concept of like, what is a batting routine? You're not just going to go and hit front foot drives all day. Uh, he had introduced different concepts that I weren't really talking about as much at a state level yet. Um, so I played all through underage cricket. It was under 17s. Uh, finally got to under 17s, about to go into senior cricket and was lucky that Cricket Australia changed it to an under 18 tournament. So I got the extra year, but only just because leading into that extra year, I got dropped again. So I was the most, probably one of the most senior players in that team, but for some reason or another, they decided they wanted to get the next lot through. Um, So I didn't make that under-18s team. And two two or three weeks before the tournament, they had an injury and ended up being called back in um, and being leading run scorer in the under-18s, which then led to me at 18 picking up my first Fury contract. Awesome. That's that's incredible. So tell us a bit more about that. Was that just off the back of the carnival? Obviously, they didn't realise your potential, hence why they didn't pick you. And and then they, they saw that you were capable, you were good enough. How did, how did that all come about and how did you feel when you, you signed your first contract? And what was it like back then? We're talking 10 years ago. Was there was there any money in it or what did you have to do outside of cricket to support yourself? Yeah, to be honest, not much money still. So I still didn't view myself as a professional cricketer. It just seemed like the next natural step. Uh, I was pretty happy to get the contract because obviously the year before being dropped, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but yeah, back then my first year, I remember it was a solid $2,000 a year, which barely covered your expenses. So at that point, lucky still living at home. Um, so I didn't have too many expenses on that front, but I went straight into my first year of uni. So I was studying exercise science at UWA. Um, I was working a part-time job on the side, very random, but, uh, in Kumon, I don't know if it's an educational thing. So helping kids after school with their tutoring. Um, and then playing cricket, and that was pretty much my life for the next few years. In those first few years as a contracted player, did you play any play any games for the state, or was it all just training with the group, going away and playing grade cricket? How did those first few years as a as a contracted player, let's call it, not a professional, how did they look? Yes, yeah, so I was. I managed to um, play the very first game of that first year was selected against New South Wales to make my debut at the Wacker. And funnily enough, for anyone that's seen me, now I bowl leg spin and bat, but I was opening the bowling, bowling absolute gas at about 80 kilometres an hour. Just little dibbly dobblers, uh, which used to take a lot of wickets at grade cricket and probably still does um, on softer wickets that seem a little bit. And then bowling to, I think it was Leah Poulton and Rachel Haynes on the Wacker, it didn't go so well. Um, I got smacked around everywhere, really. And that's when really got hit oh like it actually hit you wow this is a totally different level like we're not even on the same ballpark at all 
Um, so I played that game though um, and was kind of a bits and pieces player for the next two or three years, if I'm honest. So in and out of the team, would bat seven or eight, sometimes well, sometimes wouldn't. Um, no real clarity on what I was doing and I probably didn't own that either um, in the sense that sometimes I'd be working really hard on my batting for ages and then I'd decide, oh, no, I've got to bowl now. And then it got to the point where I just stopped bowling altogether. Um, and, yeah, it was just kind of... I don't know if I wasted those first three or four years as a state cricketer or if I was just exploring. I couldn't actually tell you. Um, it was just kind of go at the flow and see what's happening. When did you transition from the tearaway quick to the leggy? I don't say tearaway quick like that. I was absolute gas. My leg spin's probably faster now, to be honest. <laughs> um, it was leading into the first year of Big Bash. Um, so I wasn't really doing much with my bowling. And to be honest, I just got a little bit bored in the nets one day. I had a really good back of a hand slower ball where it used to just deck away a little bit. Um, messing around in the nets, last rotation or something, it's like, why don't I just try leggies? And it was actually outrageously good. Um, and the coach back then, I can't, I think it was Aaron Hamilton maybe, I can't remember, um, said, just give it a crack. There's, there's no other spinners in the state, which was probably what kept me going. There was only Emma King bowling off spin. Um, by then, Mel Holmes had retired. And there's one spinner pretty much in the state and loads of quicks, loads of batters. So I saw it as my opportunity as someone who had been in and out of the team why not add an extra string to my bow? Um, and it's probably ended up becoming my dominant skill. Awesome. And how did you then develop your... Because it must have been like you knew how to bowl, but you hadn't bowled leg spin much before. And you obviously had a decent slow ball, but it must have been like starting all over again. How did you then develop to be able to bowl in professional cricket? Two things. It was probably two years of absolute tripe, um, bowling... The outcomes of what my bowling looked like was horrendous. But the other thing is that I was bowling almost every day. Uh, on my own, I'd go down to the nets. I would be there 20, 30 minutes before training. Um, I watched a lot of videos. I um, have no shame about my nerdiness. I probably watched every leg spin video there is on YouTube. Um, and just understanding how different bowlers bowl, what do they look like, uh, what's the difference between all sorts of things? Just almost seeing what the flow is like. And whenever there was cricket on, say, even just recently, the England-Pakistan series, if I knew there were some leggies playing, just watch a lot as well um, and understand what's the difference, how does it work, and then model that to what felt right for me. And it was, to, I reckon it took me four years. I'm in my fifth now. It took me four years to be able to say, all right, yeah, I think I'm a, I can somewhat consistently land my stock ball here. And happily regard myself as a leggy that can compete with the best that's awesome and that's such a great example again such a great lesson for any young players or any aspiring cricketers listening or not necessarily even cricketers if you want to be good at something you want to be great at something and we're fortunate that in sport you can you can just go to youtube and see some of the best perform see the best ever perform and you can model them you can copy them and, and i love how you said you can just sort of take bits from everywhere and then try it for you and see what sticks, what works for you. So that's awesome. And five years in, and it's still so early, still so young, but I'm sure you've got the volume in now where, yeah, you, you can land that stock ball and, and no doubt you're going to start really competing. Because what I've seen of you bowling and obviously seen you bowl a little bit, you, you and you land them, they, they rip, they spin a lot and they've got a lot of side spin, they bounce as well. And, and you'll be bloody hard to, hard to face when you get it right. Yeah, I think that's it. That's probably the other part of why I took leg spin is that it's fun. It's different. Like, how many leg spinners do you see going around? It's incredibly difficult and every second day you're asking yourself why you're doing this. But it's the amount that comes with it. There's all sorts of things you can bowl and it's just a good contest. And that, that's probably what that reason I started playing in the first place when I was 11 or 12 is I just enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't about how many dots can I bowl in a row. It's, no, nah, let's take some wickets. Let's have a bit of fun. I don't mind getting hit for six. I can get hit, hit for, I think my first big, second Big Bash game, I got hit for five out of six boundaries in an over and didn't really play again for the season. Um, but I'd rather do that and give myself a chance to take some wickets and have a bit of fun with it. Awesome. And I think if everyone can remember why they started playing cricket, it's a great way to take a bit of pressure off yourself just to really focus on enjoying it. 
Now, you mentioned Greg Williams. Who else has been influential throughout your career? Obviously, now you're a coach and a great mentor yourself, and you're passionate about that, as I, as I am I, and hence why you're doing some work for us. Who throughout your career has been influential? Uh, so Greg, Greg was the first guy. Um, Bowling-wise, I haven't really had too many leg-spinning coaches early on. Uh, the biggest one recently was Josh Mangan. Uh, so he's from Victoria originally. I know he's played a lot of great. I think he may have played for WA as well. Um, and he was brilliant last year. I only started working with him last year, but he just picked up some really simple things in my um, approach and how I was probably too high up when I was bowling, um, probably from my medium pace days. And he just brought that simplicity and joy back into bowling. So he's been a huge huge mentor in terms of the leg spin side of things. Um, the other one is Noddy. I probably flicked around a few different batting coaches in that early 20s period. Couldn't quite find the right fit. Um, but the two that changed it completely and the numbers show it, I literally doubled my average after three months. One was Viv Paver, uh, who I know is still playing for UWA. And he was under Noddy, who I ended up working with, Noddy Holder. Uh, later in my career so that was about a year ago and both of them just changed my whole philosophy on batting um, which before had come up very technical so if the ball's full drive it if it's short pull it um, if it's wide cut it to just hitting the ball so it's no longer for me I don't view it as cricket and they're not cricket shots it's a hitting game and that gives me the ability that I can play you see Steve Smith's probably the biggest example of it I can play with the front foot and the back foot, whether it's short or full, it's all irrelevant. My only job is to go to the line of the ball, create a space to hit the ball, almost think like a baseballer, just create a space in front of me to hit the ball and then put my hand straight through the line. And if I can have a solid base and create that space consistently, I can then use my hands however I want. So example, if the ball's on good length outside off, go to the line. If I'm in a really solid position, I can safely hit it straight back down the ground. I can hit it through the leg side. I can play it later and hit it through the offside. And just that, what, what the biggest thing is with Nod and Viv is the simplicity they brought, where your whole job is to go to the line of the ball and aim to hit it back where it came from. And that's literally it. That's my batting philosophy in a nutshell. Go to the line of the ball, hit it back where it came from. And that simplicity, I'm a natural overthinker. I tend to think about everything that's possible and it's amazing how many thoughts can come into your head as the ball's coming down. But the ability to then just simply go to the line of the ball and hit it was huge. Um, awesome. Now, um, throughout your career, give us a little bit of insight into sort of what you've done off the field. Uh, we'll go more into your playing days and your career again in a minute, but what have you done like in terms of studying and in terms of jobs you've had to have to, to support yourself? Because I think young girls listen to this, um, they're, they're going to be much more fortunate when they come into the game. Um, there's more money. And, and someone listening to this in 10 years, a 13-year-old might not realise that the, the women that went before her um, had to go and do other things. So what are some things just in a nutshell that you've done off the field? Yeah, so I think at one point I had four or five different gigs going along. Um, so I studied ex exercise science uh, at UWA and then did a postgrad in exercise physiology. Um, so with that, I had two jobs. So one was in strength conditioning and rehab at Curtin Uni. That was cool though. So I got to do a few internships at the Eagles, one at, uh, with the Hockey Roos and Kookaburras to see like the real sort of elite athletes and be around and see how hard they work. Um, outside of that, I've also, at one point, I worked for my dad for two or three years I still do a bit of work for him um, in a marketing company. Uh, what else have I done? There's all sorts of things going on, um, which you have to do to sustain yourself. Because at the end of the day, it was only two or three years ago where we were getting paid. Still not, it's probably still not enough to live on comfortably, but paid enough that you wouldn't have to work a full-time job outside of it. Um, in one aspect, I've been very lucky. I stayed at home uh, with my parents for probably longer than I would have originally. If, if I was earning a decent wage. Um, but at the same time, what we've had to do is every almost every female cricketer has been in the same boat that's around my age, where you have to juggle two, three, four different jobs that are flexible enough that allows you to train at the best of your ability. 
you just got to do it if you want it. If you want to be the best and want to be a, a person, that's what you've had, a professional cricketer, that's what you've had to do. And hopefully it changes. Hopefully it changes for the, the girls and the females coming through that they can hold down a, a, a full-time career in cricket and not have to worry about working as well. But Now, back to your playing days. Um, something that I know um, was really integral in your development was your, the time you spent in the UK in 2016. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so 2016 was my first trip overseas, probably first time being away from Perth for an extended period. Uh, so I was actually based in Southampton uh, purely because the quality of training there was a lot better, but I was playing for Gloucestershire. Um, and playing with Gloss was unreal. So it was first experience, completely different conditions. But the best part about that was probably being with um, Steve Dent, who was the head coach at the time. And I ended up living with him when I was over in Bristol. And Steve has got um, a really special skill in that he's a qualified NLP. So that's Neuro Linguistic Programming Practitioner. And it's really, really in-depth about the language of the brain and how the brain works. And up until that point, I'd done basically no work on the mental game. I was training my technique over and over again, always trying to fix bits. If I wasn't making runs, it was always to do with my technique. Uh, but he brought in some really cool stuff around managing your emotions, your thought patterns, how to reframe thoughts and some really practical tools. So he gave me a book called NLP for Sport, which I literally spent four months in England studying and reading over and over again and doing all the activities. And it's another book that I highly recommend uh, to people is NLP for Sport. And he gave me another one. It was pretty, a bit of a corny book called 10 Secrets to Sporting Success. But again, it had the same similar concepts about teaching the basics of the mental game. Uh, the other thing I really liked about England was that ability to just go into a new environment uh, I'd been in WA for ages, hadn't really met anyone outside cricket uh, or different cricketers in different teams um, and the ability to go over there and literally just enjoy, meet new people, learn about the mental side of the games, continue my learning um, and it ended up paying off. I went, I think the first month or two there, didn't score over 10 and I lost the plot a little bit but that mental training came in and I ended up scoring my first 100 just before I came home and unfortunately ended up picking up a stress fracture just before, at the end of it. So I came home early at the end of July rather than coming back in September. But overall, it was an unreal experience. Awesome stuff there. And I think, yeah, un unlocking that sort of mental game was such a big game changer for you. Kent, do you remember those sort of principles of NLP? Is there anything you can sort of reel off the top of your head that, that people listening might be able to sort of dip their toes in and understand more about it? Yeah, so the main part was the basics of the mental game so talking about your subconscious mind and your conscious mind and how they all relate together and the ability to say okay I might have thoughts and feelings but I have the ability to step into a space between reframe them and then change my behaviors so I know that my behaviors my thoughts my actions they all interlink with each other and you have really great capabilities like if I change the way I'm standing right now I can actually feel better about myself, therefore have positive thoughts and then perform in a better way. And at the same time, if I can change my thoughts, they can change my actions. So it's, you can completely control. So prior to going over, I thought, oh, if I'm getting bogged down and I'm under pressure, I basically have to hit out or I have to change something technically. Whereas now it's like, no, I can change the way I think, I can change the way I'm acting. There's so many different ways to come back to the present moment and be able to make a really positive decision and move forward from there. So pretty much everything centered around that concept of how can you bring yourself to the present? What's important now? And let's move to the next, do, do your job or do the next right thing. That's awesome. I published a podcast episode yesterday, um, the final of three, um, a three part series that I did for my other podcast under the lid. And it was with the cricket Australia, a cricket Australia sports psychologist. And he talked about your thoughts, your emotions and your behaviours all being interrelated and how you can, um, you can manipulate your thoughts and your emotions, but you can't have complete control, but you can have complete control of your behaviours. So you sort of, if you want a starting point, if you start focusing on controlling your behaviours, that can 
really influence your thoughts and then your thoughts can influence your emotions and it's a cycle. Um, and he said, yeah, really focus on the behaviors because that's the one you can have complete control of. It sounds like it's very similar to what you're saying there. Yeah, bang on. And I think that's why I know you've spoken a lot about how to do a bang routine or a bowling routine about the three hours. Um, I think it was re relax, reflect, refocus. And the best part about those is you can use your behaviors to anchor in each of those. So another part of NLP and how it links back to what you said just then is that they talk a lot about anchoring. And that basically means every time, so if you, every now and again, you hear a song that you remember and it reminds you of something 10 years ago and you feel those same emotions. So you can actually create the same thing. He did an activity with me in England where you, you kind of pinch the top of your ear. So close your eyes, visualize yourself in your best ever performance, bring all those emotions up and then pinch your ear. And it's such a random thing you'd never do. And we'll do that again and again and again. And what happens is two hours later, he'll retest it, pinch his ear again, and all of a sudden those same emotions come up. So if I'm in the middle and I'm feeling really under pressure and those, I can then lean on a behaviour, which is that anchor. So my behaviour is pinch the top of my ear and those same emotions that I've anchored in come back up and now I can actually access that a lot better. So just little things like that. His son is actually Chris Dent, who's the captain of Gloucestershire at the moment. And I know Chris has used a lot of those sort of different models of mental performance as well. Awesome. So shout out to um, Steve, um, the game changer by the sounds of it. So that, that sort of kick-started your, I suppose, journey into personal development and mental skills mindset, something now you're incredibly passionate about. And I, I think back to when I... I first came across you, I, you sent me an email and I read through this email and I thought, wow, this is awesome. This chick's really cool. She's really similar. And then the last line said something like, I play for Midland Guildford. And I was like, holy moly, she's in Perth. Because I didn't know, didn't know where you were from. And, and you spoke in that email about how you're really passionate about personal development and, and learning and you know, the mindset and those sort of things. So tell us a bit more about what your journey sort of what you went through from there on in after you knew that stuff and spent your time in England, where did you go to next and, and what did you sort of start practicing? Yeah. So that, that time in England sort of dipped my toes in the water. Um, little did I know over the next three or four years it completely changed my life. So listening to started off with podcasts, which I'd listened to when I was driving uh, and then I started reading more books and just found this whole new world of it's personal development, growth, and the, the whole concept was around instead of just doing more all the time, how can you improve yourself as a person by doing cricket? So it wasn't about becoming the best cricketer in the world and then I'll be happy. As I know, cricket is one part of my life and it challenges me enough that I can actually grow from that, providing I do the right things outside of it. And the more I went into it, the more books I read, and just learning so much about this whole new world, the more I realised that that's actually the answer. So the ability to grow and the ability to learn is the outcome. And it completely flipped my mindset from being someone who was so focused on the outcome and I have to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to be able to come back and actually know what I'm doing now and being challenged now means that I'm going to grow as a person. And that, yeah, so that's something I've used every day whether it's meditation, mindfulness, uh, treating people well, just kindness, having a laugh, enjoyment. That's the biggest piece and that's probably what's changed for me in the last year is the ability to just enjoy and amazing how that results in all the other stuff that you try so hard for otherwise. If you are having a bad day, you're not hitting them well or you're, you're struggling, what do you do? Do you sort of, do you have anchors or do you just take a deep breath and center yourself and remind yourself, shift your attention. What do you actually do when things maybe aren't going how you want them to? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a skill. So some days you're better at it than others. My general process, if you're talking in the middle of a, a game or a net session, I'm huge on breath and body. So come back to my body and creating space. And I know once I'm able to calm myself down and just be present, uh, the, the, phrase I use a lot is be where your feet are um, and that phrase it just knows okay just be back here and then I can make the right decision so there's two things there's be where your feet are and win which is win or what's important now so that's my way of coming back to what's important 
just so that the listeners are really clear, what she's meaning there is bring my attention to now where my feet are because our body is always in the present moment, but everyone would sort of understand our mind could be on the past, something that's just happened or happened a little while ago, or it could be worrying about the future. So what Barbie's talking about here is really bringing your attention and your thoughts to the present moment right now. Yeah, so that's it. And there's different ways of distraction too. So one thing I didn't realise is that you can be distracted in a positive way. But so say if you're feeling overconfident or I've just made 100 last week, so I'm going to be fine. I can go in and tee off from the start this week. That's a common one. Or there's someone bowling absolute pies at you and you want to hit them out of the park. At the end of the day, they're all distractions because the only way you can perform and the only place performance happens is in the present moment. So it's just being aware. Um, the other side of it is if I'm having a bad stretch or something, I'm a massive fan of journaling or speaking to a mentor of mine. So one of the two where you can get your thoughts out and almost always it comes back to that distraction. I'm distracted by something in some way, which is normal. We're humans. Your heart's meant to beat. Your brain's meant to think. You can't say don't think. It's about how am I... It's about thinking the right way. That's, so you can't not think, you can't not have thoughts. So it's like I'm either distracted or I'm present. How do I get back to being present, acknowledge my distractions, and then take the, do the next right thing? Awesome advice for anyone listening. Now, let's go to a, a tough time in your life. Last year, May last year, you were told that you were no longer needed by WA. You'd been with them, contract with them, I think for eight years or so, and you'd, you'd sort of been a bit of a fringe play. You'd had some good times, some bad times, straight time, but to be told that you contracted was no, you no longer had a contract. Talk us through that and tell us about what the next little period in your life looked like. Yeah, so it actually came as a bit of a surprise for the first time. Um, Previous years, when it comes to contracting period, I'd always been on one-year contracts and never really blew anything away with performances. So I was never really sure whether I'd get a contract again. Um, but this time, I had dominated the club competition. Um, was a 50-over champion player. Had, I think, the top three run scorers for WA. Finally played all six games in the season. Um, and we'd been told leading into it that, yeah, you should be fine, you should be fine. And the season review went well, but then it was right in early May that I got a call from the high performance manager at the WACA um, saying, look, we're not going to offer you a contract. So it's a nature of sport. Something changed last minute. I managed to sign someone else and at the end of the day, there's only a limited amount of contracts. Um, so, yeah, I was told by the high performance manager, we're not going to offer you one, but coach will be in contact. And, yeah, I was utterly devastated. I pretty much burst into tears straight away. Luckily, I was at work, uh, so my dad was there, um, and he looked after me really well. But that, that next month was one of the most challenging of my life. As much as you do outside to try and maintain an identity away from cricket, it is really difficult when, at the same time, you're spending five, six, seven days a week working towards this goal. So I, I genuinely get the idea of you need to have your identity away from the game. But when you're committing everything to it, it's really hard to do. Um, so I had a meeting with a coach who was brilliant. So Lisa Kitely was a coach. And I had to, uh, like looking back, I have to agree with everything she said in that it was, I'd kind of been okay for a certain period of time and it'd been seven or eight years in the squad without really making that big next step. And they got to the point where I kept, I wasn't just, I just wasn't really getting anywhere in particular. I had, she's like, you have all the skills, but you keep searching, you keep searching for something and we're not seeing it in a performance aspect. And although I'd done well, it wasn't outstanding for the amount of work I was putting in. So it led me on, I call it 12 months in the wilderness, um, went on all sorts of journeys. That's when I started hitting with Noddy uh, and bowling with Josh as well. And I went back and worked with my old fitness trainer. And it was really good just to go back into the basics of the game, which looking back now, that's why I started playing in the first place. And it was to enjoy it and to keep learning rather than chasing outcomes. Uh, so it took me to Ireland. Uh, basically got bored of training indoors by myself in Perth. Had a couple of contacts out there. And ended up playing for Malahide Cricket Club for six weeks. And then adding that on, I was still in a bit of a weird place, to be honest. So we're talking two, three, four months down the track where I was still struggling 
a fair bit about what on earth I was doing. Like I'd given up my career outside of cricket in the ex-fizz world to be able to pursue cricket. Um, all my friends were contracted and training and all around each other. After the first few weeks, I basically didn't see them or hear from them besides one or two. So you pretty much lost what you think is your world. Um, but going to Ireland completely opened my eyes to there is a whole other world out there. You, you definitely get caught up in that bubble. Um, and also rediscovering why on earth I play this game. Um, over there, there's no chance of them being professional at this stage, but they play it because they love it. And it's just a bit of fun. It's like England where you go down to the club any day of the week. It's open. There's a lot of energy. The bar's open. There's all sorts going on. Um, and it's just, it just was a great six weeks away from what I thought was the world ending. And I look back on my time in the UK with so much fondness for those reasons because of the energy, the people. They just, they're there because they love the game. They love the club. And, and it really does rub off on you as a young person. Um, so what, what then happened next? Obviously, I know your story, but you decided to move to Melbourne and, and play grade cricket in Melbourne. How did that come about? And was that an easy decision to leave your home in Perth and go and live on the other side of the country? Yeah, so just before going to Ireland, I had a call from Andrew Walton, who's a, another CM mentor, saying, why don't you come play in Melbourne? You know, he's like, really energetic, just come to Melbourne. He's like, uh, no. <laughs> I basically said no straight up. Why not? Because they have the one of the strongest teams, Victoria, that it's just, there's no point in me doing that. If I'm going to move, I'm going to go to South Australia or Tasmania or even ACT, um, where I'm more chance of picking up a contract. And then the more I thought about it, and I spoke to some of the people at Ringwood who had put me to put, um, I think it was the vice president, the coach I met with for dinner. And within five minutes, like, wow, these guys are really good people. I know they're going to look after me. Maybe it's something different. Uh, and then just after thinking about it for a month or two, I realised that's exactly why I should go to Melbourne. It's because I'm not going to chase the next level. I'm not going to try and play for Victoria or Big Bash or anything like that. There's a young team. The club cricket is significantly stronger over here. So we have eight teams, um, three divisions, uh, sorry, three grades. Whereas in Perth, there's only four teams and two divisions. So if you're, if you're going to play and carry on playing at a high level, you really need to be in Melbourne or Sydney. Um, so at the end of the day, I said, yep, all right, I'll come over for half a season. They wanted me to captain, so that's something new. I've never captained before. So, yeah, I'll just come over, have a bit of fun, then come back. And that's so it was a relatively easy decision in that sense because I didn't feel like I was moving my whole life over. Um, but as you know, as the story goes, I've, it's about a year and a half later and I'm still here. <laughs> Well, there's a very happy ending. Um, you obviously had an excellent season. Before we get to your on-field stuff, what did you what did you do off the field? How did you support yourself? What were you doing throughout last summer? Yeah, so I ended up taking a bit of a break from the crazy working life. Um, I was doing a bit for my old man's business back home, a little bit of coaching as well. But outside of that, because I'd worked pretty hard for a solid 10 years prior, I had a fair few savings to live off. Um, knowing that it wasn't a sustainable way to live. But at that stage, it was only going for two or three months. Um, so I was doing bits and pieces there that kept me going. The club looked after me reasonably well as well by covering most of my accommodation and costs coming over. Um, but outside of that, I actually still was able to train relatively well and the same amount of hours that I'd normally put in. Uh, luckily, Una Raymond Hoey is an Irish cricketer, so she was over here as well playing for Ringwood. Um, and we did a lot of training and coaching and all sorts of things together. Uh, what happened next is uh, Barbie won the best player in the competition, the Una Pasley medal and Paisley. Hopefully I've said that okay. 774 runs uh, and 34 wickets, a highest score of 98 and a best bowling of four for 30. Not bad numbers then. You must be incredibly proud of how, what your output was last season. Yeah, I'm just pretty happy with that. Um, didn't, as I said before, didn't really have any expectations coming over. But what was interesting, it was probably the season where I paid attention to my own game the least, in that I was captaining a young group of girls. Um, we had three divisions. You know, I really love coaching and mentoring. So I had more of a focus on how can we help the young pups come through and how can we as a club 
develop a really good culture, working with the coaches. And I, I took a little bit of a backseat on my own game. Although I was training a lot, I think the difference was I wasn't thinking about it as much. So once I'd had my hit, it was done. I was on to helping the next person. Whereas prior, I'd have my hit and I'd spend bloody three hours thinking about it. Um, and that was probably the difference. Um, but yeah, really enjoyed it. Enjoyment was the key. It wasn't about trying to crack the next level. It was coming back to that, be where your feet are, no distractions, just do the best you can in this game and see what happens. So you've now got a contract with Victoria and we'll talk about how that came out in a second, but are you able to carry on that mentality or like the mentality of, all right, once my hit's done, it's done and I focus on someone else. I imagine that that's okay when you're at Ringwood and you're the captain and you've got younger players, but now that you're in the Victorian setup, how are you managing that? Yeah, great question. And I definitely went back to old habits for the first month or so at Vic, um, especially when you're surrounded by some outrageously good players. So we're the likes of Perry, Lanning, Milani, Molyneux, where I could go on for days. I think there's six contracted Australians plus a few more. And all of a sudden I went back into old habits of, all right, I need to hit this many balls and then I'm going to think about it and then I want to bowl. And then you also have that little voice in your head that says, oh, you've got to prove yourself to them. I think I had a little bit of imposter syndrome straight up. It's like, oh, what am I doing here? I'm just some, I'd say just some great cricketer or, I don't know those thoughts that go through your head. It's like, do I really deserve this? Like, should I be here? There's all sorts of thoughts coming into a program that's fairly elite. Um, but it's over the last two to three weeks that shifted a fair bit where I've been able to recognise, as you said earlier, just simply being distracted and coming back to what are my basics. And those basics include my mental game. So the basics include helping others. Like, let's go and learn. Just be better in this in this environment. How can I get better today? How can I help others? And what can I learn from the better players? And that reframing, if I'm honest, it's probably spent about a month to six weeks being stuck in that little rut of old habits, and that's really easy to do. So take us back. When did you get the call? How did you find out you'd been rewarded for such a good season with a with a Victorian contract in with in one of the strongest squads in the country? Uh, yes, I got a call from, funnily enough, it's funny how the world works. I was in the exact same place when I got my call a year ago from the WACA. Uh, this time I got a call from my manager, Silvio, um, saying that, yeah, Victoria are going to offer you a contract. But my learnings from last time are like I'm not saying anything or getting my hopes up until there's actually pen on paper. And then about a week later, contract was through, signed, and I was off to Melbourne. So it all all happened really quickly. but. I'm a very emotional person, as you'll find out. I burst into tears again, but this time it was more tears of happiness and a bit of shock as well, I think. I thought I was past it. Great reward. And, and hopefully, hopefully there's enough cricket this year. Hopefully the women's game can play enough games in this sort of strange environment. You Victorians can get out of there and play somewhere else and you can show the world what you're capable of and really show why you, you weren't that contract. Um, what does the what does the season look like? Do you do you have any idea of what the upcoming season looks like? Uh, we're pretty sure that first round of WNCL is out, um, and they're going to go straight into Big Bash with hubs. Uh, that's the current plan, and the current plan will be a full Big Bash season. But that's so dependent on what happens at this stage. Nothing in Victoria, so fly everyone out, be in hubs, similar to what the footy are doing at the moment and then do all our 50 over cricket in the new year. So that's best case scenario at the moment, but there's not much else we can do. It's just keep training, keep getting better. Exactly, exactly. Keep working on being the best you can be. Now now that we're sort of caught up and understand your backstory and your journey and, and what a really inspiring story it is, let's talk a little bit about your routines and your process, how you go about it. When you're batting, like something I like to ask all our, our guests is what do you think about between balls and what's your actual routine or process in between balls? Yeah, so I have, if we start just before I face up, I feel my feet on the floor and then I'll have a trigger word of some kind. If I'm honest, that trigger word changes a fair bit. It's not the same thing all the time. Uh, generally be around watch the ball or I'll say watch the seam. Uh, it'll be hit the ball is another one I use where it 
because I know if I'm a little bit uh, tentative, all I need to do is remember to the only job is to hit the ball and I'll get back into my flow state. Um, and that's pretty much once I've said that's clear mind, just watch the ball and play it. Uh, once I've played the ball, it's just a very quick review. Um, good shot or just a little bit early there and then it's gone. Uh, so I'll have a very quick review of what happened and then it's switch off. So when I'm switching off, um, I generally like to open my mind a bit. So I'll just go look at what's happening off the field, if there's any people playing. Sometimes I like having a chat if I know anyone else in the opposition team. I'm, I'm happy to chat to the wicketkeeper, usually a bit of banter, as long as I'm not thinking about batting um, or the task at hand. As long as I'm switching off from that, I'm happy. Uh, but the, the critical part is when I step up again, be where my feet are and be centred is another one I use. Now, you're talking a bit of there about your mental skills. What, from what you've seen, having been involved in the game for a while now at the sort of elite level, what percentage is technical and what percentage is mental in the women's professional game now? In the professional game, I'd say it's 80 90% mental. But generally, you need to have a base technical or you need to have base mechanics that work for you. So if you don't have the base mechanics in the first place, you can't just be really good at concentrating and then expect to succeed at the next level. What I think, the way I think they interrelate rather than percentages is that if you have a really good mental game, you allow your mechanics to happen naturally. Um, if your mental game's poor, you inhibit your natural mechanics. And that's where people who are training a lot and, and oh, hit the ball so well in the nets or I'm bowling really well in the nets, but I can't transfer it. That's because the mental game is inhibiting those mechanics actually just happening. So I don't know if I can put a percentage on it, uh, but I reckon that's how they relate to each other. And of course they're interrelated. It's, um, I suppose it's, it, and it's impossible to put a percentage on it. It's just, I guess, trying to give our viewers an understanding of it. at that level. There's a really, real importance on the mental side of the game, which people well, no doubt understand having listened to your story a lot and we've spoken a lot about the mental thing side of the game. So dealing with pressure is something everyone has to understand and, and understand how to cope under pressure. And often pressure comes from within more so than from somewhere else. But how do you deal with pressure and how, how do you deal with your own expectations? I think the last word you said there is everything. So expectations. And it's the ability, I'd say it's only in the last six to 12 months where I've actually shifted that a little bit, where I'm now able to say, okay, I've got set, rather than setting goals, it's setting bucket lists. So the idea is that, okay, it would be really cool to get a big bash contract, or it would be really cool to be able to make 100 today. But there's no expectations on that. So the only goals I'll set are those of which I have 100% control of. So, I, uh, for example, I have 100% control of bowling three times this week. And then when I'm in the middle and I feel I'm under pressure, it comes back to what are the things I have 100% control over. It can be my routine. I have no control of what ball the ball is going to bowl or what shot the batter is going to play. But I have 100% control over executing my routine as many times as I possibly can. And I've found coming back to that, I call it control circle, there's pretty much been everything for me in terms of dealing with pressure. That's awesome. I haven't heard that before, the control circle. That's really cool. I like that. And that's a, an excellent way to yeah deal with, sort of shut out that external noise and those external expectations, I suppose. Final few questions. Um, I always want to sort of learn from the greatest, or the best. I like to study them. And that's where I think I've learned a lot about the game and, and life in itself. And so you're playing with, um, and training with some of the best cricketers ever, Lise Perry and Meg Lanning, and you mentioned those other ladies. What is, what's common in some of the best players that you've seen over your career? One which I wouldn't have said a couple of years ago, but it's that ability to really enjoy the contest and really enjoy getting in the weeds and doing the work and the, the grind of it. The difference I've seen between those that are good but not great and now being able to be around the great players is that they actually just really love the grind they love working hard they love making mistakes and learning from it 
Um, the other side is they're, they're really competitive. Um, there's a natural competitiveness about the best cricketers, but at the same time, once that uh, once the competition's done, they're able to really switch off and enjoy each other's company again. And that's something which I noticed, particularly with some of these Victorian girls. When you're in a contest net, it's game on. Even when we're playing games in a warm-up, absolutely competitive. But once it's done, they're all mates. They all look after each other. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of laughing. That ability to relax at the same time is really important. Yeah, absolutely awesome advice. Now, what drives you? What, what drives you at the moment? At the moment, I just want to get the best out of myself in one aspect. And the other side of it, it's, it's more just a way of living for me. Uh, I want to wake up every morning, have something to get after, be motivated to, to get in the weeds, as I say, to be driven, to learn from the best, to keep learning and to create some, a life that I really enjoy. Uh, whereas prior, it was more of a grind. I didn't, you don't look forward to those things that challenge you. But if I can wake up every morning, have some clear goals, have a clear idea of what I want to create, then I'm pretty happy. Awesome. Um, now, looking ahead, hypothetically, and everything goes as well as it possibly could, what will you have achieved in cricket? What will you have done in the game? That's, that's a big question. Um, if everything goes as well as it possibly could, I'd like to say I'd just end with a really good, a good story of anything's possible. I'd love to be able to, as I say, my bucket list items, get back into the big bash world, um, become one of those sort of mystery spinners, if you like, change, change the way spin bowling's done in the female game to replicate what we see in the men's game a little bit more. Um, I think playing for Australia is something that every cricketer wants to be able to do. And that would be outrageous. Uh, but to be honest, it's not something that's at the front of my mind on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's just being able to get in the contest, get the best out of myself. And I know if I'm operating at that level, um, or every day I'm getting the best out of myself and training within 10, um, I'll be pretty happy. To that, how do you know if you've got the best out of yourself? I think it comes down to intent. So it's a really good question. And I say the session today, was I present is a question I'll often ask. Was I challenging myself? And was I able to come back to what's important, to come back to what I'm actually working on? When I'm not getting the best out of myself, I'm going through the motions, I'm not really concentrating, or I get lost in the distracted world of worry, anxiety. Um, and it's that, that mindset of being able to be present. If I'm distracted, keep coming back to the purpose. If I do that really well, I'm pretty happy at the end of the day. If I'm getting distracted and not being able to come back to what's important, then for me, that's failure. That's amazing. Some great advice for any young listeners. Now, last few questions. What advice would you give your younger self? Um, keep the enjoyment. For me, it's all about keeping the enjoyment. So although the, the grind can get to you and you want to chase all the external stuff, the number one thing that holds you together is enjoying the game, enjoying the contest, enjoying time with your mates. Absolutely. Some of the best advice any young person will ever hear. Now, final few questions. Why do you play cricket? Um, I play because it's what I love. I love the game. I love the contest. And the other side of it is it presents a challenge for me which I know if I have challenge and it, then it forces me to grow as a person. Now let's take a break from Barbie for a minute and go back to our last episode where I shared a bit about our six pillars of success. Okay, so we try and talk to our athletes, a few things, this is just a few of them. We try and help them have positive self-talk, tell themselves positive stories and positive affirmations that they're hitting the ball well, they're playing well, they're capable of scoring runs against anyone. Okay, we focus on using mental routines to focus our thoughts and attention. Going back to the Cricket Australia sports psychologist, he spoke about when you're in the contest, all that you need to be focusing on is everything relevant in that moment. And the run rate, the sort of scoreboard, what, your bat, what the opposition has just said to you, 
what, who's watching, they're all not relevant when the ball's being delivered. Okay? And if you're a bowler and you're running in and you're facing the batter, everything outside of the batter and the pitch is irrelevant. So you guys, as young players, need to learn, and this is what we work on with our athletes, we, you need to learn to focus on the contest and on the ball. That's all that matters in that moment. Now let's get back to Barbie. Now, before I ask the final question, I ask all of our guests, which I know you know is coming because you do have listened to a few of our podcasts, but how can all of our listeners follow you? How can everyone stay up to date with your journey and what you're up to? And is your podcast, you can give that a plug now, is that ready? Um, where are you at with that? Um, obviously, you're a, you're, a, you're a cricket mentor. Uh, you're... People can, people can follow your journey through us and we're going to be sharing more content around you. We're going to be pumping out your podcast as well once it's live, but how can sort of people follow you in the meantime? Yeah, so main place to live is Instagram. So bdevchand is my handle. Um, I'm on a few other platforms, but I don't use them as much. Uh, cricket mentoring, is, as always, that's you'll see me coming through there a lot. Um, in terms of the podcast, I'll be recording first episode next week and should be ready to launch in the next couple of weeks. So it's called The Inside Edge. And we're basically looking at a lot of what we've spoken to, uh, spoken about at the moment, which is looking at the whole world of the, in, the inside your mental game and also the courage to be yourself and the courage to trust what's already inside. And that's the best way to move forward. And we'll be doing that by looking at some of the best female athletes purely because I think that's an area that's not covered as much and the access I have at the moment to some of the best in the world um, is pretty cool and just understand as you say learn what do they do that that works what do, what have they learned where have they trailed and how can we all learn from their journeys I mean, and no doubt going to be very very inspiring and, and educational for Anyone who, who does tune in, so we'll certainly be giving that a plug and, and sharing some of that content across our channels once it's all up and running. But final question I've asked everyone on this podcast is, what is your definition of success? Yeah, so my definition of success is actually stolen from Maya Angelou um, and it's liking who I am, what I do and how I do it. That one, that was uh, one of the best answers we've probably ever gotten. Liking, can you repeat that for me? Like who I am, what I do, and how I do it. Very, very good. Well, Barbie, I have really liked who you are, what you're doing, how you've done it today. You've been awesome. You've shared so many um, great insights about yourself and your life, but also so much wisdom for others to uh, learn from. So thank you so much for being vulnerable and being open and, and giving so much value and well done on everything you've done. Um, it's still only early in your career. No doubt you've got plenty more to give and you've got um, a lot of success ahead of you. But yeah, you've done incredibly well and I'm really fortunate and, and pleased to have you as part of the Cricket Mentoring family and, and heading up our, our sort of operations with female cricket. And once you do finish playing professionally and, and sort of hang up the boots, um, you're going to be an even better coach and mentor and, and no doubt do some wonderful things in the game as a, as a coach and mentor. So Thanks again, and I look forward to getting this live and, and sharing your story with the world very soon. All right, thanks for having me, Tom. Well, Legends, I hope you've enjoyed that conversation with Barbie. Even though she's one of our mentors, and I know her quite well, and a bit of her story and her beliefs, it was great to hear more about where she's come from and how she's had to earn everything that she's achieved. We share so many similar beliefs on life, mindset, and performance, and I can't wait for Barbie to continue to develop as a player person and mentor and be on the journey with her as anything is possible. For any young cricketers listening who might not be the best player in their team or squad right now, remember that Barbie went from not being selected in the WA under 18 side to getting called up at the last minute due to an injury and she was WA's best player at the carnival and was then awarded with her first contract for WA soon after. This is yet another example to anyone listening to always remember that you should focus on what you can control and selection isn't something that you can control. All you can control is being the best you can be and making sure that you're ready to take an opportunity that might come your way. Here's a few other things that I took out of the conversation. It's not the first time I've heard Barbie say it and she shared it in an article that she published recently for our website, but I love her mantra of be where my feet are, meaning she's trying to keep her attention on the present moment and not get caught up thinking too much about the past or the future. I loved her explanation of the control circle. As I just mentioned, any athlete should try their best to focus only on what they can control, as focusing on anything else is wasting your energy. 
As Barbie said, ask yourself, what do I have 100% control of? And focus your attention and energy on that. I loved hearing how she said the best players she's seen, and as I mentioned in the intro, she's rubbing shoulders with some of the best ever at the moment. They are really competitive and have the ability to really enjoy the contest. They love the grind of getting better and they love making mistakes. I loved how she said that she wants her legacy to be a really good story of anything is possible. I'm sure anyone listening to this will already get that from her story. And finally, I loved how she judges if she's had a good day or not by asking herself, was I present? Was I challenging myself and was I able to come back to what's important? She knows that when she's not going well, she's distracted or not focused on what she needs to be doing. So she's always trying to be where my feet are. As with all our guests on this podcast, Barbie shared an amazing story and this episode was packed with some awesome advice for any aspiring cricketers. Please follow and support Barbie's career from now on and we wish her all the best for her success on and off the field. If you're an aspiring female cricketer and are willing to invest in yourself and would like to be mentored and coached by Barbie, then please get in contact with us. Send us an email at info at cricketmentoring.com or message us on our Instagram account. Regardless of where you live in the world, we have the ability through technology to mentor cricketers from all over the world. So don't let your location stop you from accessing who you want to work with. If you enjoyed this episode, then I'd love if you could please share it with a friend, a teammate, or a group of friends. Chuck the link in a WhatsApp or Facebook group or encourage someone who might find interesting to listen to it. That's it for today's episode. I really hope you're enjoying these fascinating stories from amazing people that I'm sharing with you guys. If you are enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could please take 60 to 90 seconds to leave a review as it helps us move up the rankings and get heard by more people. Thanks a lot for listening. Now it's time to go out and get it done, legends. Shop boy.